Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thank you again for taking some time out and joining us today. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to be here. We always like to start with the Angelus. Do you have a, an intention for today's Angelus? You know, today's the Feast of St. John Bosco, and I was thinking of all the good he did, especially to help troubled youth. So why don't we pray today, especially for all those young people, children who, who are struggling, you mm -hmm. know, in, in whatever way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail, Hail Mary, Mary, full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. St. John Bosco. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop Kevin Rhodes remembers the life and legacy of his predecessor in the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, Bishop John Darcy, who passed away five years ago this week. Then it's on to St. John Bosco, the Feast of the Presentation, and questions submitted by listeners. Submit yours at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here talking with our bishop. And one of the things that we are going to be celebrating on February 3rd, Saturday, is the passing of Bishop John Darcy, who was such a great leader here in our diocese. Uh, did you know him before you were transferred to Fort Wayne? No, I didn't. Really? No, I, I don't remember ever personally meeting Bishop Darcy until I, I came for the press conference announcing my appointment. Okay, and how long was that before you were installed as bishop here? About two months. Okay, and what was your initial impression of him? Oh, he was very welcoming and very grandfatherly, I would say. Yeah. You know, I could tell it was really difficult for him to retire because he loved serving the church so much in, in this diocese. So it was kind of bittersweet for him. Well, and retirement is, is maybe a, a poor name for what he was doing because he still served quite a bit even after you took over. He was helping with confirmations and still right. going around and speaking at classrooms and yeah. things like that. giving talks, giving retreats. Bishop Darcy was an incredible bishop, and it's hard for me to believe it's five, it'll be five years yeah. uh, since his death. You know, he was just so devoted to the people. It reminds me of... I don't know if I've ever met a bishop who showed that kind of devotion. You know, we wear the 
Episcopal ring. It's a sign of our spiritual marriage to the church, to mm-hmm. the diocese where we serve. Just the very fact that, that he retired here, he didn't go back home to Boston because he just loved the people of our diocese so much. Yeah. You also being a transplant to the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, do you think you would have that same Yeah, I love the diocese feeling? too, but yeah, I do. I do. And he um, he was just a very good example to me of the um, not just the fidelity that a bishop is called to, but also that wholehearted commitment to the people of God, which was so evident in his life. And he came here, he had, you know, he had served his 10 years as a bishop already when he came. He was auxiliary bishop of Boston. Mm-hmm. And also he had a, I mean, he was very intelligent. He had his doctorate in theology, spiritual theology, and he loved prayer. That was one of the things that I noticed. He was truly a man of prayer in his own personal life, but also a very good spiritual director. He had a lot of spiritual wisdom. So he was able to keep that balance between all of the work, uh, busy work that a bishop has to do, whether it's administrative or the sacramental life, with his own personal prayer life. And, and I saw that up close, and it really was very beautiful. And you had been a bishop in Pennsylvania before you came here, so you kind of understood what you were getting into as, as far as bishop goes, but at the same time, not really familiar with the area. So did he kind of take you under his wing and kind of explain the different uh, parishes and schools across the diocese? Yes, he was always writing me memos. <laughs> like he, he would hear, you know, or see on my schedule that I was going to this parish or to this school. I mean, he would write, I bet he wrote me, hundred memos and and tell me all about the parish or or if there was a personnel issue all about the priest or you know whatever he he wanted me to have all the knowledge that i that he could give me about situations that i was moving into just a little info about him for our listeners he was ordained to the priesthood in 1957 uh, earned his doctorate in theology in rome in 1968 He was Bishop of the Boston Archdiocese from 1975 to 1985, and then he was transferred here until 2009 when he retired. And what do you think his legacy will be? You know, I think... Or is, I should say. Yeah, I I think one of the things that strikes me is the area of catechesis. He was very committed to ensuring that uh, the religious education of our young people and adults as well, but especially young people in in our schools and our religious education programs, he invested a lot of time and energy. He hired a uh, religious sister, Sister Jane Carew, who worked very hard on that. And I think that's an area where our diocese is outstanding. And that's because Mm -hmm. of Bishop Darcy's leadership. He wanted to make sure that solid Catholic teaching was being provided. So he made sure that all of our teachers were properly trained. So we have a very strong catechetical program that I think is part of his legacy. Do you think some of that desire for some really solid teaching and things came from some of the struggles that were going on in Boston when he was there? Perhaps. You know, I didn't really talk to Bishop Darcy much about his experience in Boston, but but certainly being ordained to the priesthood in 1957, he saw all of the turbulence that took place in the 60s and 70s. Mm. So I think he wanted to ensure that 
good solid teaching was given he was also very devoted to pope john paul ii you know he would talk off and quote john paul a lot so i think he really appreciated the clarity of the teaching of saint john paul ii he was a man of the church i mean bishop darcy had great love and respect also for pope benedict so yeah he was just truly a man of the church and also the office of bishop he took it as this was god's will in his life and um though he never i don't think was ever puffed up about himself he did have a very clear understanding of the episcopal responsibilities the office of bishop he knew it was very very important he had as his motto every bishop has to have an episcopal motto and as you know mine is truth in charity uh-huh. and his motto is um, very interesting to think about and i think he really lived it it comes from psalm 136 and it's his steadfast love endures forever mm-hmm. and that's that's psalm 136 is uh if you've ever read it it comes across in the bravery it, it's called the great hallel and it kind of recounts it's like a litany of all the historical events throughout the history of Israel and how God is with his people and saves his people, that his, he's always merciful, that his love is steadfast. And that phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever, sometimes it's, it's translated for his mercy endures forever, but huh. Bishop Darcy chose the translation steadfast love that's repeated and repeated and repeated throughout the psalm yeah as a matter of fact that's probably the psalm that jesus and the apostles prayed at the end of the last supper because that was typically sung at the conclusion of the passover meal Hmm. so anyhow i think it's significant that that was uh and i really never had the opportunity to ask bishop darcy why he chose that motto back in 1975 when he was ordained a bishop yeah but i can see how beautiful a line that is and that it is something that must have tremendously impacted him the idea that no matter what happens in our life or in our own personal history or even in the history of the world that god is there with his love always his love is steadfast his steadfast love endures forever and i think that was the strength of bishop darcy you know he had to deal with a lot of issues a lot of problems conflicts and that but he was always maintained that steady focused kind of leadership because he trusted in god's steadfast love and probably a good reminder for all of us too because there's always going to be something that comes up and to remember that god's with us through all that yeah yeah one more uh you mentioned about other memories yeah Um, one really funny thing and i can't remember if it was when i first met him or it was in that first week where i learned how avid a boston red sox fan he was you know and it was really funny and i didn't know whether i should tell him that i was a new york yankees fan (laughs) Uh, and i thought oh my goodness he's going to be so upset somehow he found out and it was really funny because i think the Yankees must have just won the World Series, and I had a cap. Uh-huh. Well, he presented me at something with the Boston Red Sox cap, and I presented him with the Yankees uh, World Series championship hat. He really didn't like that very much. No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that uh, Bishop Darcy had an impact on other bishops? 
outside of this diocese? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think he was very well respected. He wasn't very involved as far as like committees of the USCCB and things like that. But he was someone that I think other bishops definitely admired. They admired his steadfastness. And at one point when he, um, and I'm trying to remember, I must have been, no, I was still Bishop of Harrisburg. He was Bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend. But um, he was addressing an issue here in the diocese with a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. And it became nationally known. And uh, he received a standing ovation at the meeting of the bishop's conference. And you don't see that very often. Wow. And I thought, wow, this man's pretty incredible. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was the year before I came. Huh. Very interesting. Well, hey, coming up, we are going to chat about the presentation of the Lord, the life of St. John Bosco, and we'll have questions submitted by you right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord is on Friday, February 2nd. Can you explain what we remember on this day? Well, it's when Jesus was presented in the temple by Mary and Joseph. It's 40 days after Christmas because that was when it occurred, 40 days after Jesus was born. He was presented in the temple in Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph were following the Jewish law. They were devout Jews. They brought him to God's house, and that was required parents had to present their firstborn son in the temple and they had to offer a sacrifice Hmm. so when you read the account of the presentation in luke's gospel we hear that mary and joseph offered a sacrifice of two young turtle doves or pigeons Uh because they were poor they they couldn't afford a lamb for the sacrifice so that's the first thing we learn that they were what we call maybe today the working poor. Mm -hmm. You know, not destitute, but poor. But I think also, I always think, well, actually, they did bring a lamb. Right. They brought Jesus, the lamb of God, the lamb of sacrifice, the lamb who would redeem humanity through his sacrifice on the cross. The presentation is the fourth joyful mystery of the Holy Rosary. So we have opportunity to meditate it a lot. There's a lot in that whole episode. We encounter the devout Jewish man, the righteous man, Simeon, the Mm -hmm. priest. He had waited his entire life for this moment. St. Luke tells us that he had been awaiting the consolation of Israel. Remember, Isaiah had prophesied, and every faithful Jew knew this, that God would console his people, Mm -hmm. um, comfort his people. And with the coming of the Messiah, that their suffering among the pagan nations would be brought to an end. This is what Simeon was waiting for, the consolation of Israel. So he really represents all the Jewish people who were longing for God to console them. He took the child Jesus in his arms, and he praised God in a hymn, a canticle, that we priests pray every night before we go to bed, night prayer. It's called the Nunc Dimittis. Hmm. Um, and we we were praying that prayer of Simeon. And in that prayer, Simeon proclaims to God that he can now go in peace because his eyes had seen God's salvation. And Simeon 
calls the child glory for your people Israel. God's glory had returned to the temple after 500 years. And God's glory came as a little child, the mm -hmm. son of God. And uh, Simeon also proclaimed not only that the child was glory for your people Israel, but also a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Because remember also, God had promised through Isaiah a servant who would be a light to the nations so that the salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. And that's who Jesus is, the light of the world, who would gather all nations into God's family. So the church has the custom on February 2nd of blessing candles. It's a beautiful ceremony at the beginning of Mass on February 2nd. And uh, some parishes, they'll have a procession with lighted candles. And hmm. that's why February 2nd, used to be called it still does in some places they still call it candlemas day mm -hmm. candlemas day the mass of the candles we're celebrating that jesus is the light of the nations the light that dispels the darkness of the world and that's what candles at mass signify yeah. christ another thing about the feast of the presentation if you keep reading the story there is an element of sorrow in it even though it's a joyful mystery right you can kind of it's kind of like the shadow of the cross is there because we know that the darkness will reject the light of Christ. Hmm. That's why, remember in the scene, Simeon turns to Mary, and he prophesied that the child was destined for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, mm -hmm. and would be a sign that would be contradicted. And then he adds that Mary's heart, her soul, would be pierced with a sword. So there's this shadow, this element of sorrow at the presentation. In other words, the path ahead for Jesus and Mary would be difficult. Jesus would be rejected and opposed by many. And his ministry would culminate in his bloody death on the cross. And Mary would suffer. Her heart would be pierced as she watched Jesus in his passion and was there at the foot of the cross. So it's good to think about this. Also, that Jesus remains a sign of contradiction in the world, even today, that he is the light of the world, but there are forces of darkness that even today remain opposed to him and opposed to the gospel. So I think today, or not today, February 2nd, the Feast of the Presentation, it's good to think about these things, to meditate on them, and, and really to think about following the Lord with the light of faith. I think of our Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So February 2nd, wish everybody a happy Candlemas Day. Yeah. When you're talking about Simeon's prophecy and explaining that Mary's heart is going to be pierced by a sword and and the tragedy that is going to befall Jesus. Was this news to Mary and Joseph at the time? Was that kind of a revelation to them or did they already suspect this coming? We really don't know. There's nothing explicit in scripture that that they had an inkling of this up until this point, uh -huh. you know. This may have been the first moment when they heard those words, but we can only speculate. Yeah. Yeah. 
has to be a difficult news to go home with. <laughs> it's like right. kind of like drop this on you as you're right. heading out. <laughs> well, also today we celebrate, as you mentioned earlier, the Feast of St. John Bosco. Uh, we have a parish in Cherubusco. We wish a happy feast day to them. Yes, wonderful little parish. And you mentioned a little bit about his work with the young people. Uh, what do you think drew him to serving the young people in his community? I think, if I recall correctly, at some point he met a poor orphan boy and instructed him in preparation for Holy Communion. And I think that must have uh, moved him then to reach out to other young people to teach them the catechism. Uh -huh. He also served in a hospice, kind of like a chaplain in a hospice for working girls. Early on, you know, I think in his ministry, he felt called especially to work with young people. He also founded the Salesian Society, which was named after St. Francis de Sales, who we celebrated last week. Right. Did they live at the same time, or did he just admire St. Francis de Sales and want to form a community based on what he'd learned from him, or how did, what was their relationship? Well, he had helpers when he was doing this teaching and catechizing. He trained those who, who helped him in the work of catechesis and all. And they kind of informally banded together and they were inspired by St. Francis de Sales. So with the, the Pope's encouragement, this is back in the 19th century, by the way, mid-19th century, he gathered these men together and founded the Salesians. Hmm. And their activity concentrated on education and also on mission work. But he also saw the need for this among girls. So that's why he got a group of women and started the Salesian Sisters to teach girls. And it was interesting, he, his own philosophy of education, I mean, he didn't allow any corporal punishment. He rejected mm. it. And that was kind of unusual at that time. But he tried to surround the kids to make sure they were in an environment that would kind of protect them from the likelihood of committing sin. And he would advocate and teach them to go to confession frequently, to receive Holy Communion frequently, which wasn't very common back then in the mid-19th century. Huh. So his philosophy was um, always kind of like a loving father to the young people. Another thing in biographies of him and, and articles written on him is the this dream or prophecy that he had of these two columns can you explain what that was yeah i you know it's i love that painting if you you know if you haven't seen it it shows a ship out on the sea and the sea is um, turbulent so mm -hmm. it's a stormy sea the boat is between these two columns and one of the columns has the immaculate heart of mary and the other one jesus and the blessed sacrament and it shows that the pope is in the boat kind of anchoring the the boat between these two columns uh -huh. so you know he had this dream and it, it really is a neat one because it shows us that here we are the church yeah it's stormy sometimes the sea is stormy in this life but yet it's through fidelity to jesus on one side mary on the other side staying with the pope in the boat which yeah. is like the church that that's how we have calm and that's how we make it through dangerous waters yeah i think that's the whole symbolism of it it was a dream that he had and it shows you know the church 
goes through difficulties. And yet, we should always stay in the, in the boat yeah. with Peter, who tries to anchor it yeah. uh, between Jesus and Mary. And I think, too, there was someone was attacking, and they would kill the Pope, and then they would immediately replace him. And it was kind of this, I, I see it as the, the secession of, of Peter, that we have a Pope that ke- continues to take the place of the one previously, whether you know, sometimes martyred or, or otherwise, right. uh, and that the church continues despite all these efforts from outside to try to, to put an end to the church. Exactly, uh. exactly. All right, well, if you have any questions, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer questions submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking questions that you've submitted for him to answer. And our first question starts with a compliment. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of this segment of Redeemer Radio. I listen to this program each week and always learn something new about my faith, even though I've been Catholic all my life. My question is, are there rules and regulations on the wine that is used for Mass? Does it have to be red wine? Can it be homemade wine? Or is it required to come from a specific place? Thank you, and God bless. That's a good question. Um, It has to be real wine. So, in other words, it has to be the fruit of the grape. Okay. It has to be natural, pure, incorrupt. It can't be mixed with other substances except for the little bit of water that the priest puts in with the wine during the celebration. Mm -hmm. But in order to be valid matter, it has to be true wine. You know, it has to be properly fermented, et cetera. Most of our parishes will get altar wine from companies that make it because then we're sure. But but you don't even have to get from one of those approved uh, manufacturers. That's, I'd say, the safest way. Mm-hmm. But as long as you're sure that it's real wine. If the wine has changed into vinegar, becomes corrupted, whatever, you can't use it. It's forbidden to use it. So it has to be distilled from the grape, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, usually we get all, you know, from one of these companies where it's guaranteed to be official, that it's 100% grape, doesn't have any additions to it, all of those things. And it could be red or white. There's no, oh. you, you don't have to have red wine. It could be white wine as long as it's true wine. Now, you can't have champagne or something like that that would not fit but it could be homemade yes provided it meets those other requirements that's correct and but also you could go to the grocery store and buy something off the shelf you could yeah you just look at the ingredients to make sure it's pure okay all right our next question comes from diane hunter from st charles fort wayne asked are there any retreat centers in the diocese for individual lay people to make a retreat especially a silent retreat. You know, there is a retreat center in Donaldson, Lindenwood. Mm -hmm. That's a retreat center run by the poor handmaids of Jesus Christ. And I think you can do a private retreat, a silent private retreat there. As far as other official retreat centers, that's a good question. You know, at Notre Dame, Sacred Heart Parish has a, uh, a parish center that has overnight accommodations. And um, they may allow people to make a private retreat. I'm not 
100% sure of that, though, but mm-hmm. you might want to inquire. There are a couple other places, some of the mother houses in our diocese that I know will allow individuals to make retreats. In Mishawaka, the poor sisters of Saint Fr- or the sisters of Saint Francis of Perpetual Adoration, uh-huh. but it's not like something that is an official retreat center. But I think they would be open sometimes to if someone wants to make a silent retreat. Maybe also at Victory Knoll. I'm not sure. St. Felix, actually, now that you mention it, that would that's a great place. You know, that's in Huntington, and they have a lot of uh, they, a lot of groups that make retreats there, mm-hmm. and um, that I think they would allow a private retreat as well. Great, thank you. Another question that was submitted is: How can I help my friend who is currently actively living the quote gay lifestyle? End quote. He is a former seminarian in my archdiocese who used to teach theology of the body classes. I feel so sad to see how far he has fallen from the truth. I don't want to see him go to hell for this, but I also don't want to lose his friendship. He and his partner are currently receiving Holy Communion at Mass. How can I, with truth and charity, urge him not to receive Holy Communion for the sake of his own soul? I guess the question is, is the caller sure that they're living the gay lifestyle because... We could have maybe two guys, you know, living together who are living chastely. I, I, you know, so I, but presuming that they have certain knowledge of mm-hmm. that, I think if it is a close friend, I think you could talk about the call to chastity, et cetera. Certainly pray for, for him. I think maybe the issue is, is very sensitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at the one, one hand, you, you don't want to reject the person even if they're living in a sinful situation. But at the same time, I don't think you should just be silent. Mm-hmm. You know, a good friend is not afraid to speak the truth, but always with love to the person to bring them back to follow the way of the Lord. I think one way is, is also not to do it in, in a way that the person feels that they're being condemned as a person. Uh, I think you want to talk to them as a friend and kind of reaffirm your love for him as a friend and that's why you want to talk to him or want to offer fraternal correction Mm -hmm. all right well you can ask your question by going to redeemerradio.com slash ask bishop you can call or text the holy cross college text line at 260-436-9598 and we have more of your questions coming up right here on truth and charity with bishop rhodes brought to you in part by notre dame federal credit union Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking questions that you have submitted, maybe from the website or the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And our next question comes from Father Eric Bergner from St. Pius X in Granger, who asked, what memories do you have about your priestly ordination or consecration as bishop? I always like when Father Eric calls in. I hope he's working. Where does he get the time to be making these calls? Father Eric. Uh, You know what? I have great memories of both ordinations. Actually, you didn't ask Father Eric about my diaconate ordination. Oh, yeah. Or your installation of bishop of this diocese. Yeah. As a deacon, I was ordained at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Oh, my goodness. That was such an amazing experience because I remember my mother coming for that and 
and it was just a beautiful thing. Hmm. But anyhow, he asked about my priestly ordination. It was unusual. My classmates in Harrisburg were ordained in April, and I was still in Rome completing my studies. I didn't get home until late June. So I ended up being ordained alone uh, huh. in my home parish, not even in the cathedral. Interesting. At St. Mary's Parish in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. And the bishop, Bishop Joseph Daly, was very sick, dying from cancer. Hmm. So the auxiliary bishop came to ordain me in Lebanon. And it was the only ordination that ever took place in that in Lebanon County. And the auxiliary bishop's name was William Keeler, who was a native son of the same parish, was auxiliary bishop of Harrisburg. After Bishop Daly died, he went on to become the bishop of Harrisburg, and then eventually the archbishop of Baltimore and a cardinal. Uh-huh. So it was a very personal kind of ordination because I was ordained alone and just got back like a week or two before from Rome. I'd been there for four years. So um, it was like a big reunion. I got to see a lot of relatives and friends that I hadn't seen since I went to Rome. So it was a very joyful day. Some of my friends from Rome were there. I remember that. Some of my classmates. And uh, yeah, I remember it. It's just a very, very wonderful liturgy, very personal. And that, by the way, was July 9th, 1983. There was no saint on the calendar at that time, on the universal calendar. But since then, Pope John Paul canonized the Chinese martyrs, and their feast is on July 9th. So Mm. I've kind of developed some devotion to them. With the Episcopal ordination, it's interesting how that date was chosen, because after I received the phone call that I was appointed a bishop, the Apostolic Nuncio talked to me, said I had two months you know, you have to be ordained with bishop within two months of the appointment. Huh. So really, I was looking at early December, and I was, you know, at Mount St. Mary's at the time. But I had to coordinate the calendar with the bishop who was going to be ordaining me, who was Cardinal Justin Regali of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. as well as the Apostolic Nuncio. So, and oftentimes, uh, you know, you look for a feast, for example, of one of the apostles. So November thirtieth would have worked the feast of Saint Andrew, uh-huh. but. It, it was not possible for, I don't remember if it was Cardinal Regali or, or the Nuncio. His name was Archbishop Montalvo. So I, I looked at early December, and I spent a lot of years as a priest in Hispanic ministry. And I knew December 12th, Our Lady of Guadalupe would not work because the other bishops, most of them were busy with diocesan celebrations uh-huh. on the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So then I looked, I said, well, why not three days earlier, the Feast of St. Juan Diego? Because uh-huh. I had a lot of devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe, and I thought, and Juan Diego, I thought, well, that was when Our Lady of Guadalupe first appeared, was on December 9th. Right. So maybe that would be possible. And sure enough, it was. So that became very special. You know, that humble Aztec man, Juan Diego, it was just a really wonderful time to, to be ordained a bishop. I remember the liturgy, again, was beautiful, the music, everything. It was in St. Patrick's Cathedral in Harrisburg. One thing you get to do is you have two priests 
that you choose to be on either side of you. Usually, they're priests who you're, you know are your good friends or mentors. Uh-huh. So I had my first pastor on one side, Monsignor Tom Brenner. God rest him. He's since died. He was such a wonderful priest at St. Patrick's Parish in York, Pennsylvania. And on the other side, another priest who was a great mentor to me, Father Bernie Pistoni, who's still alive. He's retired in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Of course, my family and mm-hmm. everyone. It was just uh, very beautiful. A lot of the seminarians from Mount St. Mary's and were there. There was an overflow, so they had it on uh like closed circuit TV in the basement of the cathedral, but it was a a very cold, rainy day. I remember that outside, but it was really a fantastic time, and um, and it was like a homecoming too because I had been serving at Mount St. Mary's for about ten years, so I was coming back to my home diocese, but coming back as their bishop. I had a lot to learn because you know I was never an auxiliary bishop. I was the bishop, so I had to learn on the job. It was pretty quick. So thanks, Father Eric, for that question. It brings back many happy memories for me. Yeah. Well, our next question comes from Andrea from the Immaculate Conception. Said, you have served on many national committees and boards. What has been your favorite or has one stood out as having the most rewarding work? Well, the ones where I've been the chair of the committee have been the most work. Because when you're chair, it's a lot of work. So I was chair of the U.S. Bishops Task Force on Healthcare. That was not only a lot of work, that was a, a big learning curve for me. And that was an appointment that I received from Cardinal George mm-hmm. when he was president of the USCCB. But a lot of issues came to us about, um, especially about Catholic hospitals. But I luckily, I had some very good experts and theologians on the committee. Mm-hmm moral theologians. The other one that I was chair of was the Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family, Life, and Youth. That was a huge amount of of, uh, work, but I had such a great staff in Washington that it made it a lot easier. So we were in a lot of communication by email or by phone, and just so many good resources that they work on in the area of marriage and family life. We would do all the planning for U.S. delegation to World Youth Day. You can Mm. imagine all that's involved in that. Also, we were kind of the principal bishops committee that served kind of as a liaison with all these national groups, lay groups, etc. I don't know if I'd say that was my favorite, but I did enjoy that work. Now, the committees that I've been members of, there have been several. I would definitely say the most rewarding is being on the board of Catholic Relief Services, Yeah, being a member of the board, because the works of charity, the work of development, done in over 100 countries of the world that the U.S. Catholic Church supports through CRS, it's just amazing to me. I mean, we have a you know, 3,000 staff working among the poorest of the poor, but doing such amazing work in Africa, in Latin America, in Southeast Asia, in the Middle East. And of course, each year as a board member, I'm asked to travel and I'll be going to Ethiopia the first week of March. Last year I was in Gaza and the West Bank and the year before I was in Haiti. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much, but what is most inspiring is to see the work of Christ that's being carried on there, the, you know, help people to to make a living, to recognize their dignity. And not only the, um, 
you know, all the relief efforts we have after a hurricane or an earthquake or whatever, which is really needed and really important. But just the year-round work and helping people to build a livelihood, and you know, oftentimes in agricultural work or whatever. I'm just proud of the work that uh, CRS does, and and really that's because of the generosity of the Catholics of the United States. So I I would definitely say that stands out as the most rewarding work. And we really haven't had a chance to talk much about the Ethiopia trip. I think we'll have to talk about that in the future. But do you know what you'll be doing when you're there? I didn't get the exact itinerary yet, but that was one of our biggest projects a year ago because we were one of the main, if not the main relief agency because they were facing another big famine. You know, there's drought and every number of years it can become to the point where it's a disaster, where people are dying of hunger. I mean, thousands and thousands of people dying of hunger. Well, that disaster was really averted this last year or two when the drought came because of the all the work of CRS, hmm. you know. We were one of the principal groups that the U.S. government funded mm-hmm. to do this, plus we use our own money that we raise. So I'm, I'm anxious to kind of learn more about that, like sure. how was that averted? What were the things that they did? So I have a lot to learn. I, and, and I know that we have a big presence in Ethiopia, and I'm just looking forward to see what kind of projects there are. I don't know much about it. And this is one of the things that why they send us on these trips. They want us to learn as right. board members so that we know the work. And then we also go to encourage the staff who mm-hmm. work there. Because this isn't easy. I mean, think about Ethiopia. It's located between, on one side, I think, is is South Sudan on one side and the other side is it borders Eritrea which has had its problems they've had some some strife between Eritrea and Ethiopia but then also Somalia is right there where there's terrorists and so it's kind of a dangerous area of the world East Africa there where there's been a lot of war mm-hmm. so it'll be interesting all another thing that kind of I find interesting about Ethiopia is it's probably the oldest country with christians in africa from the early centuries of christianity there's been a ethiopian converts so we even read in the scriptures so um a lot of orthodox christians i think the catholic church is pretty small there but a lot of orthodox christians greek orthodox and then i think there are a lot of muslims there too but i don't really know a lot yeah so i'm i'll read before i go so that i'm more up to date and can talk more about this on a future program. Yeah. Well, our last question comes from Frank Hyman from St. Mary's in Decatur, my six-year-old son, who said, does Bishop know any jokes? Hey. (laughs) Okay, Frank, I hope you're listening. I have a few jokes for you. Okay. (laughs) Okay. How do all the oceans say hello to each other? I don't know. They wave. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Frank, here's another one. What did one wall say to the other wall? I'll meet you at the corner. <laughs> I think these are good for a six-year-old. Yeah, yeah. He'll, he'll oh, here's another one I thought of. What do you call a bear with no teeth? A gummy bear. <laughs> do, should I keep going? <laughs> sure. Okay, Frank. What do you call a pig that knows karate? A pork chop. (laughs) 
Oh, what animal needs to wear a wig? <laughs> I don't know. A bald eagle. <laughs> <laughs> I know these are corny. Uh, I'm Frank, crying, though. I'm trying to think. I'm not good at thinking. Oh, I got one. Another one. Why do French people like to eat snails? They can't stand fast food. <laughs> oh, here's another one. What did the envelope say to the stamp? Stick with me and we'll go places. <laughs> okay, Frank. Hope you enjoyed them. Take those to school, Frank. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. This has been great again. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tune in next Wednesday at noon for a new episode of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. All right. Okay. One last one. <laughs> Why can't your nose be 12 inches long? Because then it would be a foot. Yeah. <laughs>